They are a very lean, mean fighter. They know what they're doing. They're very historic. They're very fundamental fighters. I couldn't imagine being there when all this was happening. It was so disheartening to watch. When gunmen prowl the streets and your heart is pounding as you hide inside your home, your mind goes to every little thing I can imagine that could get you killed. A smartphone, a personal computer, a single song that you sang so proudly yesterday could bring you nothing and your family devastation today. Well, this is the reality for millions of Afghan citizens. Imagine you're faced with this impossible choice. What do you do with your digital world? Everything from your passport, your text, your financial accounts, your laptops, your tablets, your social media accounts, everything. Do you just erase it all? Get rid of it for your very own safety? Now that the Taliban has taken over, millions of people are racing to just get rid of every last trace of their online lives. Every photo is a link to the past, and the Taliban are cruel. They're unforgiving. They are just horrible. Here in the United States, we would never really think or even consider that our government would kill us because of the contents of our phone. But the Afghans are plunging into a nightmare. After knowing and embracing all the wonders of modern technology, they don't have any more digital worlds. It's just gone. Imagine if you had to go back. So many Afghans are finding clever solutions amidst all the chaos. They're backing up their data to the cloud. They're destroying all the evidence. But even that is not 100% safe since third parties, you know this, they can break into your cloud accounts. So they're scouring the internet, looking through their hard drives, tearing through filing cabinets, anything that could attract the Taliban's attention. They have to stop a potential murderer from knocking on their door. Watching all this news and hearing all the news on the radio got me thinking about my friend Rico Danielson. You see, Rico's a U.S. Army combat veteran who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've had these amazing conversations in the past. He's now a cybersecurity researcher who focuses on digital forensics and incident response. But in the past, he fought back against terrorist groups both on the ground and digitally in Iraq and in Afghanistan, where all this is happening. If you listen to one of our previous podcasts, it was about a woman who was getting stalked day and night. She couldn't figure out who the guy was. Well, that's when I called Rico because I knew, like, he could figure it out, and he has. Rico is a total genius. And in this episode of Kim Commando Explains, Rico's going to give us the full scoop on tech's role in the Afghan takeover and how it's putting people's lives at risk. Not just the Afghanis, but people here in the United States. You're going to hear about something called Hide. H-I-I-D-E. Rico knows all about it. I read about it. I thought, oh my gosh, I couldn't imagine these hide devices getting into the wrong hands. And whose hands are the wrong hands? Now, before we get this podcast started, I have a huge, huge favor. I want you to be sure that you rate, review, follow, and subscribe to Kim Commando Explains, because this way, whenever we release new podcasts, you get them, even when you're sleeping. Yes! We have all this coming up, so stay right where you are here with Kim Commando Explains. Just looking at the pictures on the news, I'm telling you, wow. I couldn't imagine being in Afghanistan. I couldn't imagine just the devastation, the effects it would have on my family life and my friends and my work. And when I did see the images, I thought to some previous conversations I had with Rico Danielson, because he was there. He knows what it's like. So when I read about these hide devices, I just knew that Rico would have a scoop. So joining us is Rico Danielson. So Rico, tell us about your history with the Taliban. 
So my history with the Taliban, I've actually fought against them in Afghanistan, and I've actually helped train different various organizations and contingent forces to fight against them. Um, they are a very lean, mean fighter. They know what they're doing. They're very historic. They're very fundamental fighters. But as we see, they have been yet to be defeated all the way from the Spartans, all the way to the Russians, to the Indians, to now us. We have not defeated them. And um, they are some really, really good fighters. And it's very disheartening to see what's going on right now. Oh, it is. I mean, I saw the image of the girls on their way to school and the Taliban all around them. I thought, gosh, you know, I if I had a 12 year old girl. I wouldn't let her leave the house. Yeah, just. Yeah, that's just, some solid advice right there. Just wouldn't be possible. So I was reading about these things called HIDE, handheld interagency identity detection equipment. What are they? So actually, this is a very old, uh, old technology, believe it or not. Uh, we actually use this in Iraq. When we first invaded the country, we needed to identify who's who and what's what. Uh, if we look at the old technology, it's called BISA, B-I-S-A, uh, Biometric Information uh, Something Analyst. And what it is, is it's this handheld device, and you actually hold it up to somebody's face, and you capture their demographical mapping of their face, their genome points their eyes, their retina scans, the size of the pupil. And also it's like, a, uh, it's a ocular uh, thumbprint. And then from there, this uh, device also captures a thumbprint and also your fingerprints. So essentially you have somebody's identity right then and there within 26 minutes, if you will. At that point, the information is uploaded to a, let's just call it a database somewhere. And various agencies have interconnections to it, such as the DIA, FBI, DEA, NSA, um, every alphabet soup in the world, plus another NGO groups as well. What are and, and what are NGO groups? Uh, non-government agencies. I see. Non-government okay. Sorry, I should have known that. I mean, everything's <laughs> always shortened up with an acronym with the government. I swear. Um, it's okay. So the whole idea is that you would get all this biometric information, upload it, right. and for what reason exactly? So it serves multi purposes. Uh, whenever you gain the the demographical information, you create this profile and you say, this person is a part of this tribe and this is their lineage back to X, Y, and Z. You compartmentalize that and put that person in a certain region, a certain fashion, a certain militant group, and whether they're trustworthy or not to work at the United States. And here's what the, here's what the problem with this data comes into play is that once a person is sanctioned to or non-sanctioned, sanctions are left to work with the United States, a little checkbox or their profile is deemed as United States, whatever, uh, you know, confidant, if you will. Sure. Friendly. And yep. And so now that the information is in the Taliban's hands, they might be able to see who worked with the United States and who was in favor of the United States and who, what efforts were pushed by them, such as interpreters, uh, linguists, um, logistics companies, business owners, um, the, the Taliban's totalitarian methodology and also mental state is that if you looked at the United States in a supportive way, that's it. You're pretty much done. Right. Um, so at that being said, we have to take in perspective that of those BISAs, this also includes Afghani, let's just say other coalition forces like Australian, Germany, Poland, because Jeez. whenever you capture this information, you issue a badge to gain access to the, to the compound, to to whatever, whether it's green, red, yellow badges, 
and depends on the significant nomenclature on the back of it, whether it's an LN for local national, TCN, third country national, or whatever the case may be. Um, the problem with this information is it's just not excluded to the Taliban or to the Afghanis, but it's also to other um, other people, such as Sri Lankese, Indians who came to work there. Um, so they, so they, they have a lot. I mean, there's a lot of data here. There's a lot that they have so much data can be compromised. Tons of data, tons of people's information, private information, addresses, next of kin, um, social securities, jinsias for Iraqis. How did they get to all this? I mean, it's not like it's just sitting in a box somewhere, right? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I don't know what the at the tactical level, what happened. I can tell you there was a really poorly executed plan for strategy of exiting. Uh, I do know from a source on the ground right now in hiding that um, they have left everything as is and they rolled out into the safe houses. And that's oh. the last time I heard of the person. They left uh, laptops, uh, technical information. Uh, there was no destruction uh, instructions. Uh, usually whenever you leave a hot zone or anything like that, you want to destruct all your devices. Uh, there's none of that. It was just get out and rip out. In the special operation community, that's pretty common, but you definitely take preventative measures. For the civilian population, that just doesn't seem like it lines up. So from my understanding that not only the, the United States side of the compounds have been just left as is, which are complete warfighter systems like Apache helicopters. Um, now I'm starting to see from another person, uh, she's in the United Nations, she's in hiding right now, that uh, she sent me a video that the United Nations airport just got taken, taken uh-huh. and all their equipment. And wow. that, that includes food, that includes shelter, that includes hygiene. So now you have a strong band Taliban hold that is holding down not only from a military perspective, but also from a humanitarian perspective. And I can only imagine what's going to happen next. You know, when you see pictures of the Taliban and you see them like, you know, with their historic garb and, and, you know, and, and you see them lined up there in the news conference, you don't really see them as a technologically advanced war machine. Are they? They're they're not. They're not. However, their primitive warfighter style uh, gives them the competitive edge. I'm not worried about the Taliban having the technologically uh, technologically advanced right now because one, they don't know what really what to do with it, and two, they're dumb enough but yet smart enough to figure out who wants to buy it, and that's how they're going to feel their fight. Uh, now, I'm pretty sure the Taliban has connections all the way to Hezbollah, all the way to ISIS, um, possibly even some terrorist groups in China or Malaysia, and people are going to come come over there with a pocket full of money and say, hey. We'll help you take your city within 24 to 48 hours like we did. And we just want the technology in return. And then once it's in their hands, all bets are off, right? Sometimes. the I believe that what's going to happen is whoever acquired the technology, the warfighter systems and stuff like that, they're going to probably want to reverse engineer a lot of what was on it. Like, give an example. There's a thing called a FLIR 360 camera that goes on the bottom of a helicopter. And it could pick you up a mile away. It can identify whether you're male, female, how tall you are, what's your, how much your blood is flowing through your, your body, just based on thermal imaging. Imagine if you're a second, third world country and you have a military and you just need that competitive edge to identify your enemies in the field. Now you have it. It's free reign. You just show up to the Taliban, you offer them money, or better yet for them, it's power. Oh, we, we'll give you power. You just give us the technology in return. And what that does is level the playing field now. When you were stationed over in Afghanistan, what did you do there exactly? 
some stuff I can't tell you what I did. Some stuff I can. Um, the stuff that I did was we provided weapons to contingent forces against the Taliban. One of the main projects that I was on was a uh, water development project, if you will. Uh, the water development project was to create a dam to produce power, consistent power to the city, to the specific city. Uh, my job was to make sure that there was no bad blood between the local politicians and also the Taliban, because sometimes the Taliban comes down and says, hey, what are you doing? Pay me off. And the best thing that you can do is just pay them off, because if not, they're going to blow up your schools. They're going to blow up everything else in between. So our job was to arm our security forces and ensure that they actually had bread, beans, and bullets and also train them. <laughs> Breads? Um, Wait, I'm sorry. Bread, beans, and bullets. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Bread, beans, and bullets. <laughs> I'm sorry. I <laughs> never heard sure that, that phrase. Oh, yeah. There, there's an old general saying, the battalion runs on its belly. Um, if I think Hitler made the, the worst mistake. He actually starved his army, whereas the United States, we continually feed our army and we make sure they're fed, that it's squared away so they have the energy to fight. Sure. So there's the same premise whenever we teamed up with these local fighters. We said, we know that the Taliban's there. We know because they're shooting at us every day we come out here. We know that. Are they a good shot? Absolutely not. So are the, you know, the numbers are in our favor here, guys. However, there's going to come a point where they're going to come down here. And, and like two or three hundred of them are going to come down here. And you need to be able to fight. So what we'll do is take these small contingent forces of maybe 10, 20 people and show them how to fight arm them, let them go their way, and hopefully they'll survive the attack. I have a, a dear friend of mine who was embedded in Afghanistan. Uh, he's a was a senior cameraman for CBS News and 60 Minutes. And he would send me notes from time to time about what was going on or pictures or whatever. But I'll never forget, I, I would always say, you know, so, so Roy, where are you? And he'd say, I'm in the shit can states. And I can say that because this is a podcast. And I'd be like, the shit can states. What's that? He's like, Pakistan, Afghanistan. He said yeah. they're all just shit cans. <laughs> and, uh, and it was, and he also had, um, he had 11 passports. Oh, okay. Yeah. And Maybe a red one, I imagine. So depending upon where he was, mm -hmm. uh, that he would pull out a different passport. And mm -hmm. he had the ability, he was Native American, but he had the ability to look really just about any nationality that you wanted him to. Right. And so he was driving from Phoenix to San Diego. His son was moving. And so he was on I-10 outside of Yuma and he was going the speed limit driving a U-Haul truck and a Arizona state trooper pulled him over. Now here's a guy who's been for 30 years embedded in all kinds of war, Vietnam, I mean, everything. And cop pulls him over and says, boy, do you have a license? And Roy says, excuse me, sir. He says, get out of the truck. Because, you know, he thought he was Hispanic. <laughs> so he told me he pulls out his driver's license that shows that he's a journalist for CBS News in 60 Minutes. And, you know, he has it on one side with the other one on the side. And he was also a former Marine. I mean, this guy's salt of the earth, right? Awesome. And um, the cop looks at him and goes, well, I guess I'll let you go. And then Roy looks at him and says, you know what? You should never call a man over the age of 60 boy. You know, just <laughs> Great idea. Yes. Great move there. Exactly. Good, good advice. So when we come back, I want to talk more about how you got into forensics. 
And maybe you have some tips for people along the way. So stay right where you are. We have that and a lot more coming up next. So, Rico, tell me, how did you get into forensics? So I got into digital forensics uh, when I first went to the Army. We were doing a raid in in Ramadi, Iraq, and this uh, technical guy, if you will, came with us on a raid, kicking in doors, chasing bad guys, snagging up, snagging and bagging, right? And we go back to the compound, and he said, hey, come here. You want to see something cool? So check. Good to go, sir. Let me take a look. And he just really did something real simple, plugged in the phone to the UFED, and it just dumped all the data. And at that point, I saw where the commander actually made a commander's intent, commander's decision right alive on the battlefield, said, hey, we got to go chase these phone numbers down this direction. Let's go back out there. I thought for a moment that digital forensic stuff is going to be in the consumer marketplace here real soon, real fast. So while I was in deployed, I stayed in touch with that guy. And then uh, while I was in law school, I actually specified more specifically in digital forensics in that area of practice. Do you think most people are aware of how much information they store on their phone, what could be tracked about them. And I, I mean, my inclination is that it's, they, they have no clue. I mean, they, they really don't understand that the power of this iPhone or, or Google Pixel or whatever, you know, Samsung Galaxy, whatever. I don't think they fully understand that everything that's on there and what can be tracked and found out about them. True. I agree. A lot of people don't understand. Sometimes people don't want to understand. And number two, to actually be totally secure such as an extreme like they reference an extreme privacy it takes a lot of effort it takes multiple efforts it takes change in behavior uh, that's where at the fundamental level it starts i don't know if people really thoroughly understand what needs to happen at the cell phone level or better yet at the behavior level once they understand those two then you can start you know having more privacy if you will so are you talking about things like using like signal as an app or sure. encrypting and vpns and all that other good stuff Absolutely. I, I mean, you have, you look at it from a multi-layer, look at it from a, an Oreo, right? You have the top layer. What are you going to do from the top layer? Use your VPN. Cool. Uh, from the from the middle layer of the Oreo, what are you doing for your antivirus? What are you doing for uh, non-traceability? Do you have a three-pass wipe? Is this thing auto-dumping? And then the last layer is, it's a matter of your last uh, level of protection. What are you doing for that? How are you architecting that? And a lot of people don't know how to do it or don't want to know how to do it. But it kind of makes your job easier, doesn't it? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. Every once in a while, I will, I call it chasing my own. Um, I, I've chased a digital forensics uh, criminal for a long time and recently captured him. And I was like, okay, wow, it only took me five years. This is amazing. But, Can you talk about that? Um, yeah, yeah. Basically, it was a fraudster uh, running around doing their mortgage ring. And um, this person used a multi-layer, like it's called Zombine. Uh, they would zombie the computer, make sure it's able to communicate, carry out the nefarious activity, and then completely wipe it. But however, they knew the exact same uh, pathway and the methodology to use it. And it was actually a, a couple different things. Technology and the spoofing and the forensic aspect was a small aspect of it. It was actually leveraging a vulnerability in the mortgage uh, mortgage industry. Oh, and wow. this person was able to walk away, I, I want to say roughly about 3.5 mil. Jeez. <laughs> It took you five years. It took me five years. It just, it was just little by little, little by little. And it took me five years because this person wouldn't do big hits. It was very small, very subtle. Um, you know, 1000 here, 2000 there, a hundred grand here, and then scale it back down. Um, once you find the circadian rhythm, 
of a criminal's act activity at that point you can profile them and say okay this is what the person looks like this is what this is the tools they use like this is their threat landscape this is the living off the land if you will how they approach things and then you can say okay i'm going to try to predict they're going to do it right about now and then boom. you know that's interesting but you know when they're up when they're actually they have a habit right it's a they do everybody has a habit especially criminals criminals have a habit big time they're just a little bit better at disguising their habits so you know i've been getting it seems like a lot of phone calls from people who are going through divorces okay and where like one gal like she was wondering like how her husband could have complete access to all the security cameras and you know and of course, you know, did you have a Nest app? Did you change the password? <laughs> okay. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, or this person's getting into the router. Um, are, are you seeing more instances of, of forensics in, in those type of situations? What you're asking is definitely, it's always been there. Now it's just more publicized, if you will. It's more known. Um, you know, a lot of people are now being subjugated because obviously we work from home now. We're a little bit more tight knit and we have more visibility. I believe that people uh, might be looking at each other type deal in, in regards to you're, you're my own worst enemy, if you will. And they're trying to look for a source of, of refuge. So they look for any reason to indicate, but it's always been there. What I'm starting to see is on the more higher side of, of healthcare, if you will. Um, also, uh, smaller clinics getting hit for ransomware and also different insider threats. A lot of CEOs are committing crimes. Um, on that side of the house. That's what I'm starting to see quite a bit. The residents, the domestic stuff has always been there. Now it's just being amplified. Okay, so the healthcare industry, we're talking about hospitals, clinics, sole practitioners with ransomware. Is that is that the new target? Um, it's a new traverse target, if you will. Um, hospital beds in regards to 35 beds and below. Yeah, they don't have a lot of money to, to dump in security. They just, they just know that. The, the criminal, the attacker has done the reconnaissance on you. They know how much money you're making. They know what, who's the CEO. They know the CFO. Probably chances are they probably know you're a roadmap already, and they've reconned you for about a year. And when these people get hit and these companies get hit, it's not surprising, to be honest with you. It, I see it all the time. And now it's just low-hanging fruit because the margin ability on the healthcare is, I think, 1% to 3%. I'm sorry. What does that mean, 1% to 3%? The margin ability of profits. So it's oh. 1% to 3%. So let's just say you have a 100-bed hospital. You're doing I don't know, $500 million a year, your one to 3% of that is going to be allocated for your IT and security budget. Oh, geez, the, that's nothing. Yeah, exactly. So the bigger thing is patient care. We want to make sure the patient's alive. We want to make sure they're good to go. So where are we going to allocate our money? Do we want the, the kidney pump or the cancer machine to work or do we want it to be secure? So they go over the working thing. Okay, so, so I know you've been in these situations. So, so somebody calls you and says, I've been hit with ransomware. Okay. Mm. And it's surprising to me that the, that the criminals, that they would take a year really to, to hunt somebody down, but to know everything. And um, when a company does get hit with ransomware and they call you, what's your first thought? What's your first question for them? Sure. What have you done? What have you done to mitigate this risk? What have you done? What are you doing to mitigate this risk? And what do you think in your next step is going to be? Um, we could talk about your backup disaster recovery program. We could talk about um, your infrastructure. However, we need to take a step back. A business decision is going to be made here real soon with regards to whomever has been hit. So we need to take that 
that concept forward a little bit more and say, before we make that business decision, whether it's to pay or whether it's to negotiate with a ransomware attacker, we need to know how, what the data points have been affected. How much is that going to cost you to remediate that and also sure. do the, the care afterwards? And if it outweighs one or the other, if it's going to cost you $3 million after, after remediation uh, effects versus paying out $200,000, that's a business decision you're going to have to make or the, the person's going to have to make. So I see that quite a bit nowadays. Now, you also negotiate with the I, – I I'm so fascinated with what you do. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just like I couldn't imagine like calling, okay, so here's the deal. You want $3 million, We don't have $3 million, but we can do like $1.5 million. And, right. uh, and you need to go away. We need to have – then they come back and they say, no, we want to have uh, – you know, we want $5 million or whatever or $10 million or sure. whatever the number is. So how do you start to negotiate? I mean, it's almost like negotiating with a kidnapper. It is actually that's you know it's ransomware. Um, you know you're being you're being taken for a kidnapping, if you will, um, ransom. So you know the first thing we always start off is it's Mister So and So. Good to meet you. How's it going? Good, good. I've seen some transcripts with other negotiators where they just completely botch it. Where it's like, give me this, give me that. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a business transaction. Okay. As much as we don't like it, they are human. As much as we are. Sure. So you have to control that narrative by controlling yourself. So once we're on the phone with them, whether it's a phone, text message, it doesn't matter. We start working the deal saying, hey, what do you think you have? Because not what do you have, but what do you think you have? Oh, I have all of this data. Awesome. Very no problem. I recently saw a, um, a fitness industry. Uh, they got hit and they said, the cyber attacker said, we have all this critical data. And I said, well, let me, took, let me take a look at the sample set of data. And it's like, person's name meal plan meal plan meal plan chicken nuggets and i go <laughs> okay so i'm talking to the cio and i said okay so this, <laughs> how much do they want they one bitcoin yeah tell them no no because by the time you provide credit monitoring to this person or whatever it is um you're gonna be you're gonna be so far in the debt that you might as well just go out of business so that's kind of an example of it well, you know, there there was a case, and I can't say who it is or anything like this, but I was talking to a lawyer who was involved in a ransomware negotiation. And uh, you're a lawyer, so you can, you know, you can appreciate this too. So I, he didn't tell me any of the clients, but he said that one of the, the points of the negotiation was whether or not the company would publicize the fact that they were hit by ransomware. Yep. And so let's just say the number, so that let's just use... No, I mean, Easy numbers. So first they wanted $75,000. Sure. Okay. Then they went to, and then they were at like 4,000 and then they go to 50,000 and they go to 8,000. And now, now it's at like $15,000. Sure. And so my lawyer friend is they, he said, he, he told the, uh, he told them, you know, okay, we'll, we'll settle for the 15,000. And then the, uh, ransomware guy said, listen, no, if you give us 20,000, we won't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, it sounds about right. Sounds about right. But either way, it's going to be publicly known. So that's a, that's just a, a bad uh, ransomware negotiator on the attacker's part. <laughs> just to say I that. Would, yeah, uh, that's one of the things they will ask you is say, hey, are you going to go, are you going to go public with this? Cool, no problem. We'll go ahead and alleviate that and kind of lower that blow, if you will. And here's what we do. I've actually seen some of the arrogance of some ransomware attackers like, Hey, we'll go ahead and do remediation for you if you like as well. Your stuff. <laughs> and it's like, that's so nice. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. You're just so awesome. That was so great <laughs> of you. 
So, you know, the FBI, they go back and forth and they say, I mean, I know we're off the tangent of the Taliban, but sure. we'll go back to that in just a second. But I know the FBI, they say, you know, you should you should pay them. Isn't that their latest advice? You should just pay them the, the Bitcoin or whatever they want. I've I've heard from different organizations within the FBI and they say pay them a no payment. Um, however, we have to take in consideration. Remember, the FBI is in the business for themselves. Yes, they're here to do some service for us, but they're in the business for themselves. And number two, your data is gone. That's what they're going to tell you. And number three, you're, you're never going to get your money back. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> that, that, that's it. There's now, no there, refunds. There are some instances when the line, the, the stars align, they line beautifully. Uh, the FBI can go ahead and intercept the server in which the, the money is being sent to the crypto wallet. Absolutely. But that takes time. If you're in if you're in the moment of need now, um, that's when that's when their their judicial process is just not going to work. See, this is why I always like talking to you, Rico, because we can start out on one topic, and then it's kind of like people are just like listening to us around the kitchen table because we go like in this direction and that direction and that direction. <laughs> uh, so stay right where you are because coming up next, I'm not sure what Rico and I are going to talk about, but it will be amazing. Okay, Rico, let's go back to the Taliban. Um, on Twitter, they have gotten like 600,000 followers, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Facebook's trying to figure out what to do with them. And YouTube's trying to figure out what to do with them. Are they really using like mainstream social media to spread their word effectively? Probably not. But is that how they're getting their word out? Right, exactly. Um, so. That is very true. They're actually going to leverage social media quite a bit. That's exactly what happened in Libya whenever the government was overthrown. They were actually coordinating uh, cyber or bomb attacks and also airstrikes via Twitter. So I wouldn't be surprised that there was some of that some of the influence on this side of the house as well. How did they do I that would've... on Twitter and nobody picked up on it? You just drop a longitude latitude and there you go. That's it. Wow. And then it happens. Um yeah, it happens. Remember, there's no regulate. There's barely no regulation in regards to um, social media communication and stuff like that. There's the big brother, obviously, you know, big tech who wants to come in and do whatever they want. But when it comes to cell phone, I mean, a country can go ahead and just blacklist the whole cell uh, area and then completely wipe out technology, all right, or the communication of technology. But they're going to send up their own WAN the lands areas so they can communicate. So, and the best possible way to hide is to put on social media because it gets inundated with so much data. Yeah, so that's true. Data. Yeah, the data stream is just too much for you to really go through all that. Do they Absolutely. use like secret apps for communication between themselves? I've seen some secret apps being developed. Um, there, are, there are very few of them. They, sometimes people just go back to the generality of using Signal versus until that thing is worn down or WhatsApp until they get made and they drop that and they get a new account and figure out that way. So there, there's different various ways. I've seen quite a bit of terrorist organization have their own apps and have their own websites and have their own infrastructure. So what do you think is going to happen now in Afghanistan? It's bad. It looks bad. So, uh, yeah. Um, what I think is going to happen is they're going to use the technology that they procured for bad, for evil. Um, let's look at it from a warfare perspective. They're going to take it back. Um, they're going to use that technology probably against us the United States, they're probably going to use it against different allies of the United States. Um, this, the Taliban is very vindictive and long holding, and that's what they do. They hold grudges for 20, 25 years. And that's, that's just based upon their ideology. 
I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing attacks. Um, now from the home front on their side of the house in local Afghanistan, they're going to go in phases. They're going to go house by house to figure out who did what and what did who. Um, and they'll probably start executing people there publicly. Okay. I think they already started. How long were you over there? Uh, off and on between Iraq and Afghanistan, I uh, did about nine rotations. Wow, that's a lot. So what, yeah. do you, what do you feel looking at what's going on right now, knowing that you were there on the ground? I mean, you had a play in all this, trying to make sure that the United States had control over it. You know, um, I, I go back and forth on it. Uh, some, some emotions come up, some don't. Uh, one thing I would definitely say is, you know, whether you're on the private side, agency side, or whether you're on the soldier side, um, you know, our efforts weren't wasted. Our efforts were to keep the to keep the wolf at bay. And that's what we did for 20 years. Uh, there was no attack on the United States. That's true. For a long time. Yep, that's very true. So I think I'll, I'll go ahead and take that win. Um, but I see now that we've basically let the wolves out of the den that we corralled them in. It's it's going to be very interesting. It's going to be very heartbreaking, too. So, Rico, before we leave, sure. tell everybody about you, what you do, and how they can contact you. Because didn't <laughs> we, okay, we did a podcast, and you got like a couple <laughs> of really cool gigs, didn't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've done awesome things in my life. I'm very blessed to have done cool things, as I've been told. By uh by a significant other of mine, uh, she likes to call me Batman because I just <laughs> do everything. So I was like, I wish I had Batman money, but nonetheless, you will. Um, uh, yeah. Recently, uh, been hands deep into cyber negotiation. My forte is incident response, helping people and businesses get out of cyber incident response issues in the best practices that's the best interest for them. Um, and that might also entail, you know, patient, uh, patient data, banking information, retail, all it just runs it facet uh, where it's all stemmed from was actually doing digital forensics from cell phones on on cell phones on computers for civil and criminal cases. Um, now I'm starting to get breaking into very, very rapidly the cyber ransomware negotiation part of it, where we sit down with the threat actor, we sit down with the CIO, the CISO and say, hey, here's here's kind of what we're looking at, folks. What are we going to do? And we figure it out from there. And then, so how does somebody get a hold of you? Uh, you know, they can always email me, rico.danielson at gmail.com. They can always do that. <laughs> I still can't believe you give your email address. Yep, okay. absolutely. Come I will on, always dude. do that. <laughs> I will always do that. <laughs> All right. Go. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. Rock and roll, of course. You Anytime. got it. Right on. Thanks. There's always a double-edged sword with tech. For all the good that it does, it can be also turned into a weapon. I remember when Rico said that, although the Taliban isn't super technologically advanced, it doesn't matter. In a way, it kind of gives them an edge. They can focus on brutality and get their tech and sell the tech and get money from other nations. And keep in mind what he talked about with that Oreo cookie. I mean, what exactly are you using for a VPN? You should be using ExpressVPN. What about your antivirus software? Okay, total AV. What about all your other levels of protection? We don't know how this is all going to end up. And it was never my intention to play politics. I wanted you just to be informed and to know exactly what was going on. So do me a favor, rate, review, like, and follow this podcast. And don't forget, you can always find me 24-7 on social media, Instagram.com slash Kim Commando. Get this, Facebook.com slash Kim Commando. Wait, there's more. LinkedIn.com slash Kim Commando. Pinterest.com slash Kim Commando. You see the trend here? You see the trend? So stop ghosting me. Follow me on all my social media because I'm posting day and night. And of course, you can find me 24-7 over at Commando.com. That's with a K, of course, not the C. 
You know what that is. K-O-M-A-N-D-O.com. Thanks for listening.